A big debate in the church is whether or not Jesus Christ will return for his church before the tribulation. That is known as the doctrine of imminency, or more famously known as the rapture. Well, on today's podcast, we're going to be diving into 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and we're going to be unpacking the doctrine of the rapture. So get out your Bibles and let's get into it. Hey there, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you as always. Blessed to be with you as we continue our study here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now today we're going to be transitioning into a passage that I believe is the most explicit passage regarding the rapture. Now as I said in my opening, this is open for debate. There have been many great theologians and scholars of the New Testament, including the Old Testament, in the study of eschatology, that just means the study of the end times, or as some people like to put it, the study of the last days. What will transpire in the coming years down the road? Now, some people take the book of Revelation to be a literal interpretation, but also taking the symbols and making sure that they're consistent in their hermeneutic about the allegory that is used within the gospel, or excuse me, within the letter. Uh, of revelation from the apostle john others say that it's allegory uh, all the way through and that the symbolisms that we see um, are not relevant to today but they occurred in the past and so some people who hold to that view are post-tribulationists they are amillennialists now if you're unfamiliar with these terms i encourage you guys to look them up now on our podcast our particular theological stance is we believe in the rapture, which I'm going to be explaining to you today. And let me just say this, because through my courses in seminary through the years, in the last 20 plus years, this has probably been my most fascinating study um, in the realm of theology, um, even outside of my particular forte of a Christian apologetics and philosophy. I just love eschatology. I love studying these things. And it's funny because in all the books I've written, I've never written a book on prophecy. I touched on it a little bit in our Q&A book that we wrote several years ago with Dr. Norman Geisler. He also held to a pre-trib position, a pre-millennial position. And there are other uh, colleagues of mine that I share the stage with that I um, embrace as, as fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord who do not hold to the rapture who hold to a mid-trib, the rapture comes mid part of the tribulation period, or at the very end of it. And so I just want you guys to know that as we dissect these issues and we talk about it on today's podcast, there is a lot of division surrounding this particular passage. And even though I staunchly oppose many of my colleagues and many books out there that remove the teaching of the rapture, the doctrine of imminency, I respect them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so I just want you guys to know that. And so I won't do justice uh, on the podcast today because we're just going to be looking at this particular passage. We'll refer to other passages outside to kind of understand collectively and contextually what Paul is conveying, I believe, here. Uh, but I do uh, encourage you to dive into other resources, and I'll be mentioning one in a minute. 
So having said that, today's title, this is podcast 198. So we're two away from being reaching 200. Um, And let me just say, on all the platforms, we were just checking when we came to studio, and all the platforms where Stand Strong in the Word podcast is available, we are getting tens of thousands of people who are downloading and listening to the podcast around the world. So I just want to pause before we dive in and say thank you, Lord. Thank you to all those faithful listeners and people who are learning the word of God with me chronologically, verse by verse. So let me know also if you have a biblical question or if you have prayer that you can send that to info at standstrongministries.org. Okay, so one of the things I want to say with the title here, The Sudden Return of Christ, in this passage in verses 13 through 18, is let me just lay out that Paul, I believe, even up to this point, has been building his case. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through some of the key verses here in 1 Thessalonians. And if you go back before we dive into chapter 4, four notice in 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonians 1 verse 10. I'm trying to get my Bible here to open it. Here we go. So verse 10 here says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So I believe that Paul is already building up his case before he talks about this imminent return of Jesus. Okay. Notice the wrath to come. I believe is in reference to the tribulation period. Now, let me just say this. Many people mistakenly think that Christians have to endure the tribulation period to sanctify them, for them to repent, whatever. Nowhere in scripture does it teach that. They fail to take the actual term of tribulation that's used in the book of Revelation, for example. And that's also mentioned in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. And what they do in the English term is they improperly use or lump the terms together as one tribulation, meaning trials that we face in this world. And then they take the seven year tribulation and they lump them together. That is a poor hermeneutic. When people do that, Paul, when he's referencing to the wrath to come, he's referring to Jacob's distress, Jacob's trouble, the time of great wrath that come upon the earth that we explicitly see in Revelation chapter 6 through 19 before the second coming of Jesus Christ with his resurrected saints. The wrath to come is regarding the tribulation period, and we see that throughout Scripture. When you jump to chapter 2, verse 19, you see here that Paul mentions, once again, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Notice he's not talking about the physical reign on earth yet when he's talking about the return of Jesus. I believe, again, he's hinting at the rapture. Chapter 3, verse 13. He says here, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Notice, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints... The Bible, we will see here in chapter four, Paul builds from these statements that he's been making throughout his letter. The saints, he says, the dead in Christ will rise first, we'll see. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, raptured. That's the rapturo, harpazo. We'll be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. 
This establishing our hearts to be blameless those return is referring to the resurrected body. When do we receive that? We receive it prior to the tribulation period that we will not enter. That's why we receive our resurrected bodies. Going back to 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, he has not appointed us to, to wrath we will see. But he says here, who delivers us from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. If you, if you look at, and we'll be talking about this after this chapter, into chapter 5 verses 1 through 11, he's talking about these times and these seasons, and he'll be more specific about those things. When you look at 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8 particularly, he says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. I, I, I believe he's talking about that, that imminent return. We don't know when it will happen. And so anytime you jump into the tribulation period of seven years, that's marked by the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, that's where we get the seven years based on prophets in Daniel chapter nine. He's saying that day, that imminent return of Christ, that he will return at any given time. We don't know the day. But if you put the rapture at any time in the tribulation period, then we will know the day because we're working off uh, uh, two, three and a halves, which equals seven. He says, notice verse nine, for God has not destined us for wrath. Once again, he's referencing the seals, the trumpets, the seals and the bowls that will, will be poured out onto the world, but he's obtained salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where we are told in Matthew 16, he has his reward in hand, and we will receive our resurrected bodies. So this is amazing truth, my friends. So when we now enter into 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 and following, we have to understand something. The Thessalonians believed that Christ had already returned and they missed it. The other ones were concerned and it's, it's you know, still I get this question a lot today. Well, what about the people who died before the rapture? Where do they go? Where are they at currently? If they don't have their resurrected bodies, what are they possessing, if you will, right now in this intermediate state, which we can look at in Philippians 1, 23 and 2 Corinthians 5, but for our time today, let me just read for you John Wolverd in his Every Prophecy of the Bible, clear explanations for uncertain times. So we can kind of set the stage as we dive into this passage in verses 13 through 18 in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Now, let me just say John Wolverd has passed away for, gosh, well over 20 plus years, I think at this point. He was a world-renowned scholar and taught at Dallas Theological Seminary with my former mentor and colleague, Dr. Norman Geyser, for many years. John Wolvert is considered, right next to people like Dr. Dwight Pentecost, as the leading voices and scholars and experts in eschatology, especially when it comes to a form, not entirely, but a form of a futuristic dispensational view that is a pre-trib, pre-trib pre-mill, okay? And I would say outside of Dr. Norman Geyser, Dr. John Wolverd has probably been an individual that I have uh, learned a ton from and have mad respect. And one of our current colleagues um, has studied under him, Mark Hitchcock, um, not directly, but from him and with his son. 
and is a leading scholar and pastor who is based out of Oklahoma, Mark Hitchcock. And he does a fantastic job kind of carrying the Wolverd legacy on in the study of end times. Well, this is what Dr. Wolverd says in every prophecy of the Bible, which I highly recommend a great resource. He says, quote, if one can accept the supernatural event of Christ dying for sin and rising from the grave, one can also believe in the future rapture of the church. This is defined as their faith that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. That's in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. Wolver continues to say, though the general truth of the resurrection of the dead is variously stated in scripture in both the Old and New Testaments, a special revelation of the rapture of a particular body of saints and the translation of those living at the time is nowhere linked to the doctrine of the second coming when Christ comes to establish his kingdom. At the rapture, believers are caught up to heaven. At the second coming, believers remain on earth. Accordingly, the event that Paul was describing here is quite different from the second coming of Christ as it is normally defined, In quote. So I give you this quote, I share this quote with you to understand that what we're about to read is not in reference or linked to the second coming. Those are two different events. So when Wolvert says here, though the general truth of the resurrection of the dead is variously stated in scripture in both the Old and New Testaments, a special revelation of the rapture of a particular body of saints and the translation of those living at the time is not linked to the event of the second advent. So the details that we're going to be looking at right now are separate from the end of Revelation 19, where we see Jesus and that descriptiveness with a sword in his mouth on a white horse coming with us, his saints and our resurrected bodies to wipe out the Antichrist in the battle of Armageddon. So as we dive in now, let me read you 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So if you don't have a Bible, just listen to these truths from Paul. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though Jesus, God, will bring with him, or even, th- even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, meaning those who have died before us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, so as we dive in, notice in verse 13, right off the bat, Paul's not speaking of soul sleep, which teaches that after a person dies, right, they remain in a non-conscious state in death. And then at some point down the road, 
they are awakened at the resurrection. No, the Bible is very clear that once a Christian dies, meaning once we are absent from the body, that means the soul departs the soul spirit. That's, that's one in the same. They're not, they're, they're interchangeable. They're not separate. So your soul goes away from the body. Your body's dead. Okay. So your body cannot survive without the soul and it goes to be with the Lord. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. We see that in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, as I referenced earlier. We also see that in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 10, which let me read that to you guys since we're in 1 Thessalonians. In verse 10, it says, Who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, meaning whether we are alive or we die, we might live with him. So when we die, we as Christians will be with Jesus. James 2, verse 26 affirms that the body is dead without the spirit. Now, Muntz's com- uh, complete expository dictionary says, quote, when biblical authors want to focus on death as an entrance into the intermediate state and therefore as something temporary, they will use a Greek word known as komoia. Now, after the tragic stoning of Stephen, Luke tells us that he simply, quote, fell asleep, Acts 760, end quote. Physical death is not the true end for Stephen. Muntz's dictionary says, Paul likely has a pastoral motive when he uses koimo in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, and 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, where he touches on the sensitive topics of the death of a spouse and death as a result of judgment. The bodies of the saints who have fallen asleep were raised at the death of Jesus, Matthew 27, verse 52. Jesus says that our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him before he raises him from the dead. John 11, 11, end quote. So in this section, Paul isn't addressing the intermediate state of believers who previously died, but the event of bodily resurrection in the parousia, meaning the return of our Lord who comes for his saints That's what he's referencing here in verse 13, and he doesn't want them to be uninformed. And that's why I do think we need to have rigorous debates about these issues because they matter. We will be blessed when you study the book of Revelation. Uh, We will find hope. We are to to remain alert and vigilant and be uh, on guard, and we are to be doing the work of the Lord until he returns. And so if Jesus tarries, When you think about how many parables do we have about that, about the readiness that we are to have as Christians, knowing that Jesus will return at any given time and he will judge us, not of sin, but we are to give an account of what we've done. So in verse 14, when he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, this is important because notice he's referencing the resurrection of Jesus. Why is he bringing that up? Paul's first reason is the resurrection. Why? Because in this passage, we will receive our resurrected bodies. It's at the event of the rapture prior to the tribulation period. The tribulation period is not for Christians. Now, does that mean there won't be people who would come to saving faith in the tribulation? Of course there will be. We see that in Revelation 7 and elsewhere. But I don't want to get sidetracked. But those who are alive and remain in and are alive physically on the earth at the rap and the rapture occurs, we will receive our resurrection, not to be to be mistaken as a reconstruction of the body. 
And one thing that we can do when we're studying 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, is we can cross-reference it with 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 58. But I want to refer to 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 42, where Paul describes the dead body as a seed. Okay? A, as a seed in the resurrected body is as a flower that blossoms. And this is significant because Jesus, remember, right, rose from the dead, and we too can believe that loved ones who were believers, like my mom, she was killed in a car accident when I was 15. She believed in Jesus as her Lord and Savior. She's in the intermediate state right now. The rapture hasn't occurred yet, but she will, she will receive her resurrected bodies when Christ returns for his church. And when they who have died, they will be taken from their graves, if you will, and they will receive their resurrected bodies. But also in reference to Paul's uh, description here of the seed and the flower uh, referring to the resurrection of our bodies, notice what Jesus said in John 5, 25 through 29, when he talked about the resurrection of the saints. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment in quote right here. Jesus, before he talks about the all of the discourse and very little is mentioned explicitly about the rapture but he's talking about those who will come out of their tombs when they hear his voice this is interesting because what we're going to see my friends is when the incident i should say more specifically when the heavenly event when the sudden unexpected of course we're anticipating it but we don't know when it's going to occur so when the the when the unexpected event of jesus appearing we are told that there will be a voice from heaven and also a voice from the archangel when the trumpet is sounded. And notice when they hear his voice. So when we see Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 6, 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Why we should care about the rapture, I believe, is because the scripture teaches it. And because the rapture, at the rapture, we receive our resurrected bodies, the resurrection of the saints. God who raised the Lord, he will do that to us. Jesus talked about it in John 5. Paul talks about it here. He also mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 23, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So get this. If the resurrection didn't happen, there is no rapture. There is no second coming of Christ to rule and reign on this earth in our resurrected bodies. And if Christ, he says though in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep, those who have died in Christ have also perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all 
We are all of these people that we are, we are to be most pitied. I mean, it's pathetic to think that we would believe such foolishness. But he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Notice the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. End quote. Notice, but each in his own order, Christ, who started with him first, he's the second Adam. He's restored the fallenness of man by atoning for our sins, dying, paying the penalty, but rising from the dead. So he's the first fruits. And it says, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So as Jesus has received a resurrected body, we will receive a resurrected body. And then in verse 42 through 44 of 1 Corinthians 15, so it is with resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And then the last verse, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Christ and bring us with you into his presence. The rapture, we receive our resurrected bodies and we will be in his presence celebrating the Lord's Supper of the Lamb. Isn't that beautiful? So in the verse 15, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. So this is amazing because the doctrine of eminency, the rapture is declared by God himself. And he says, those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, the parousia, this is not the second coming. This is the rapture. They will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul is given a special revelation from Jesus regarding the rapture of the church. No one else has received this. So yes, in, in, in this regard, when a lot of people say, well, you know, if the doctrine of imminency, as you suggest, if the rapture is such a huge doctrine in the, in the scriptures that we should uphold to as believers, then why isn't it all throughout the New Testament? Why isn't it just up there? You know what, guys? 33% of the Bible's prophecy already. That's a lot. There's already a lot of prophecy. And I believe he devotes an entire section here. And then he, and, and as I just read through portions of 1 Corinthians 15, just specifically reading about the resurrection of the dead, not so much about the twink, you know, in the, in the, uh, the twinkling of the eye, meaning the moment in which Christ comes and takes us, raptures us, harpazo in the Greek. But we see here him mentioning it because he's given a special revelation at this point. And this is his second letter that he's given to the Thessalonians. And the reason being also is because knowing that he spent at least three Sabbaths with them in Acts 17, that he's addressing these specifically because they were brought up and God moves on him to write this letter that other people can read, including us, to even this day. So there's, there is enough information. You know, Paul's sole responsibility was not just dedicating, you know, to the teaching of the rapture. There's other issues, justification of faith being the, the primary doctrine that he was given, you know, through the mystery of the Lord in Ephesians chapter three, 
and through the manifold grace of God, he was called to preach the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. So that was his primary thing. That's so it's not the rapture. Doesn't mean that it's secondary. You know, most of my ministry is devoted to equipping people to defend the faith. And so in the process, I teach them the fundamentals of the faith. Uh, we do this podcast. And so we try to divide up the responsibility of how we're teaching people to grow in their faith. But there are some areas that take precedent or a particular audience. And the same was the case here with Paul. Now, this phrase coming of the Lord, again, this Greek word is parousia. It's a common term that is used in the New Testament to designate the return of Christ in the establishment of his kingdom on earth. We see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, the first coming of Jesus is known as the rapture. And Jesus here partially returns for his church in the air. And we, who are the church, right, we make up the church, we will meet Jesus in the air. And when we do, it's at that moment we will re receive our resurrected bodies. Now, the second coming is Jesus and his saints in their resurrected bodies returning to the earth to establish his kingdom on earth. Now, both comings, the rapture and the second coming of Christ, are to be taken literally. When you look at the Garden of Eden, it was a literal place that had literal humans living there, Adam and Eve. There was a literal fall. And Christ literally came, the incarnation, right? Came down into the world, took on a physical human body, and he literally died, and he literally physically, bodily rose from the dead. Therefore, as a result of that, contextually, hermeneutically, and theologically, and biblically, we believe the rapture and the second coming are both future events that will take place literally in the future at some point. Now, the rapture, we don't know when, but the second coming, we do. Once the tribulation period and the signing of the treaty with the Antichrist will be in effect. That starts, if you will, the countdown of the seven years of tribulation. Now, much of what Paul mentions here in verses 13 through 18 regarding the coming of the Lord parallels to what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you outside scriptures. I already gave you one in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to give you two more. When you look at Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and Luke 21, notice I'm going to give you a summation here. The first thing that we see in a breakdown in Matthew 24 through 30 or verse 30, the son of man will return in the clouds. That parallels to the description that we're given here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That is not the description that we're given when it comes to the second coming or anywhere in the middle of the tribulation period. Number two, a trumpet call will be heard. We're told that in Matthew 24, 31. Paul also mentions that here in the mentioning and the descriptiveness of the rapture. Verse or Number three, gathering the saints from the ends of the earth. Mark 13, 27. We're told the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain. Well, guess what? That's not just Christians in the North, in North America region. They're Christians all over the world. Number four, no one knows when the Lord will return for his saints. Matthew 24, 42. This is something Paul repeatedly talks about. He doesn't mention any time frame here in chapter four. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, he talks about it being a thief in the night. In number five, According to Matthew 24, verse 43, the return of Jesus is like a thief in the night. 
So no one knows, and he compares it as a thief in the night. So the rapture completes God's dispensation of the church prior to the tribulation period. What we see about the tribulation period, it has nothing to do with the church, though the church will continue on because there are people who come to saving faith. The Holy Spirit will be moving. And so, yes, people will gather. But we're referring to the church prior to the tribulation. Therefore, we refer as we mentioned, like the temp, the temple, the third temple, we refer to it as the tribulation uh, temple because it's built for that period of time when they start instituting sacrifices again. Uh, you see that in Ezekiel 40 through 48. So likewise, when we're referring to saints, to Christians and dwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit during the tribulation period, they are not Christians who were not raptured and just went into the tribulation period. No, they came to Christ during, at some point in the tribulation period. They're known as tribulational saints. So the rapture completes God's dispensation of the church prior to the tribulation. And so when you look at Revelation chapters 1 through 5, guess what? The church is mentioned 19 times, specifically referring to seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3. But when you look at Revelation 6 through 19 in reference to the tribulation period, nowhere is the church mentioned. It's absent, actually. That term, ecclesia, that we use is absent from the text. The only mentioning of the church is the 24 elders in Revelation 4, 4, 5, 5 through 6, and chapters 8 through 14, or excuse me, verses 8 through 14 of chapter 5 of Revelation. Now, which, in fact, when we, when we dive deeper... These are heavenly events. They're not earthly ones. They occur during the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is with who? Us, the church saints, who were raptured. Furthermore, no other New Testament passage that describes the tribulation period mentions the church at all. When you go back to Jesus himself in Matthew 24, 15 through 31, when you see, we'll, well, when we get into Second Thessalonians, we'll see chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, which is a fantastic, I mean, I love breaking down, and I can't wait to study that chapter with you guys. So the tribulation is God's judgment upon Israel, not the church. This is a preparation time for Israel's restoration and to judge the people who went after Israel and they persecuted the church. We'll see that, in, you see that in Deuteronomy 4. 29 through 30, Jeremiah 30, 4 through 11, Daniel 8, 24 through 27, and Malachi chapter 4, 5 and 6. Then let me pause before we jump in verse 16 and say this. Notice what I'm doing. I am utilizing the word of God and helping us understand outside the realm of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because clearly this is a passage that Paul is building from other teachings from the Olivet Discourse. And John will later talk about in his revelation that does not contradict Paul, nor does it contradict Jesus. That is important. So let's keep that in mind as we honor Scripture. Now, verse 14, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with a sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now notice, when the Lord returns for his church, there will be what? A cry of a command a voice of an archangel, and notice the sound of a trumpet. So three things. Let's break down those three things. Now, by the way, 
I'm already looking that we're 35 minutes in and this will probably be a little bit longer and rightly so. So we can try to do our best to unpack this passage of scripture. And I don't want to break it up into two parts. So just bear with me because some of you guys, we normally will end the podcast about, you know, 35 to 42 minutes. So this might go a little bit long, but for good reason. Okay. So let's look at what this cry of command or the shout of the Lord is. Now it's hard to interpret what the sound will be. Could you imagine if we had a glimpse of what that would sound like? Now I do believe more likely um, that, you know, when you look at various passages here about this cry of command, one thing that we correlate to automatically was when Jesus gave a command to raise the dead in John eleven forty three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. We're told Lazarus come forth. I mentioned John five twenty eight earlier. Jesus said to those in the graves shall hear his voice. I believe the, 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 the lamb of God, right? The second person of the Trinity, the son of man, the son of God will be the one who will give this command or known as the shout of the Lord. And so Lazarus got a glimpse of that. Okay. The voice of the archangel. Now scholars debate whether this is actually reference to Michael, the archangel that's mentioned in Daniel 10 verse 13 and Jude chapter nine. What we do know is that the voice from the archangel is probably a shout of triumph. What's amazing that we see with this counsel that God has in heaven, not because he needs counseling or he seeks advice. It's not what it means, but God has, he has, he has created and designed and decreed certain figureheads, seraphims, archangels, in this case, Michael, to deliver his judgment in some instances, execute justice, declare victory and triumph as well. So that's what this is. And this is calling his people to heaven. And he's assisted, if you will, again, not because he lacks power or authority, but God in his beauty and his creation, he utilizes his creatures to honor and glorify himself and his will that it may be accomplished Uh, Because we know God's divine will never be thwarted. Now, the trumpet of God, this is in reference to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, mentioned here in verse 16, as well as Revelation 4, verse 1. So this is not the same trumpet that is mentioned in Revelation 11, 15 through 18, Joel chapter 2, verse 1, Matthew 24, verse 31. So a lot of people in trying to dissect and to try to disprove the rapture, they will link the trumpet to Revelation 11. And some people even use this as a sign of, of him coming like three quarters of the way um, during the tribulation period to rapture the church based on that. That is clearly not the case that we see. In the Bible, what's, what's significant about this is what does this trumpet mean? Well, it means two things. One, it, it means when you hear the trumpet sound, it was, is a summoning for battle. Um, it also carries the idea the summoning for worship according to numbers chapter 10 verses one through three. Now, most scholars do believe that the trumpet here at the rapture carries both meanings that it is a sign um, for battle because what he's doing is he's calling us, his saints, the church to be resurrected and to celebrate with him, with all of our loved ones 
who have died before us, who knew Jesus as their Savior. Perhaps many of those people um, who have passed away, loved ones of yours, led you to Christ and helped you grow in your faith. That certainly was the case with my mother. And so that's, that's, that's a time of celebration to the, the beatific vision to see Jesus face to face. No more, no more sin, no more sorrow. And so it's a time of worship as we fellowship, just like Jesus had with the disciples in the upper room. Remember, they did the Psalters. They broke bread. They had communion. And Jesus said, I will not do this until you're back with me and that we will have the Lord's Supper. And it's a time of worship. They would, they would sing and worship. But we're also prepared to come with him in our resurrected bodies for battle in the Battle of Armageddon. Of course, it's going to be um, just a total bloodshed. There's going to be no uh, demonic, you know, uh, military activity that can thwart and stop God at all. And so that's why I do tend to take this, the scholars here, uh, and, you know, I should say agree with them that it carries both meanings of trumpet of God is worship and a call to battle. Now, as he prepares his heavenly host for the battle to come with Satan and the, and, and the Antichrist and many of the Gentile nations, we will be called as a church when we're caught up to heaven as we worship the lamb. We see this in Revelation 4, verse, uh, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so I love this description that Paul gives here because it excites me to say, Lord, when you call us, when we hear that, that loud cry, that trumpet of God, when, when we hear that, we'll be caught up and we'll receive our resurrected bodies. And the rapture trumpet that, that we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 the sound of the trumpet in this cry of in command of God and this voice of the archangel, guys, we should look to the heavens and, and just almost with excitement, like a child on Christmas morning, looking, saying, Lord, I cannot wait to hear your voice, to hear that archangel, to hear that trumpet, to come worship you, to celebrate with you. Now, at the rapture, Jesus is accompanied, as I mentioned, by an archangel. And notice at the second coming, Jesus is accompanied by angels, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. The other thing is we are also told by Paul that at the last trumpet sounds, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and 1 Thessalonians here, verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16, Christians will be translated into the resurrected bodies. That's based on 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 2 through 4, and this happens prior to the tribulation period of Revelation 4, verse 19. That, my friends, I continue to stress and give you verses to look them up for yourself. And I know a lot of commentaries, and I've read a lot of other books of people, different points of view, of how they try to exegete these verses to make it sound like it's mid-trib, um, it's post-trib. I'm not convinced. I've probably studied those positions more than the actual uh, one that I believe, and I do that because... You know, I have a heart to help people exegete the scriptures accordingly. And, and the one verse that I think really solidifies this particular passage is found in Isaiah 27, 12 through 13, where the prophet announces a common gathering after the trumpets are sounded. And so this is an incident that occurred thousands of years ago, and it's a reflection of what will come one day when we hear the trumpet of the Lord. We're told in Isaiah, in that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. 
And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem, end quote. That, my friends, right there is a sign of what will come someday. That occurred in the land of Assyria then. So there's a pattern and why we have this description in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 because it really paints a beautiful picture of what we've seen in the Old Testament when that great trumpet was blown. What does it signify? And so it has great significance here in the event of the rapture. Verse 17, those who are alive and remain who are left will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the clouds. Now, Charles Ryrie in his basic theology book says the Greek word for which we take the term rapture appears in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, translated caught up. Now catch this, the Latin translation of this verse is rapturo, where we have now in the Greek, the translation is harpazo, which means to snatch or take away. Elsewhere, we use, we use to describe how the spirit caught up Philip near Gaza and brought him to Caesarea in Acts 8.39, and to describe Paul's experience of being caught up in the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 4. Thus, there, is, there can be no doubt that the word here in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 indicates the actual removal of people from earth to heaven, end quote. So the bottom line is this, those who are alive at the rapture, at the moment the rapture occurs, right, taking us from the earth, what's going to happen is we're going to be translated into our resurrected bodies. And again, 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says the rapture will be in a blinking of an eye. What's so important here as well to back this up is, remember, Jesus departed to prepare a place for us and he promised that he will return for us in John 14, 1 through 3. I believe at this moment prior to the tribulation that that fits perfectly to the bridegroom unexpectedly coming for his bride after he prepares a place. So that's what we see Jesus meaning in John 14 in the upper room. Remember, because the rapture, it's a picture of a Hebrew wedding. What are we going to have in celebration when he when we receive our resurrected bodies, we, when we, the church, are known as the bride of Christ? We will have a supper, a feast. That's why we refer to it as the marriage supper of the lamb, the lamb that was slain for you and me. A covenant was made. That's why Jesus goes to prepare a place for his bride. And when he's ready, he will come and he will get his bride, the church, unexpectedly, John 14, 3, Revelation 19, 6 through 16. And the marriage supper of the lamb will happen before the second coming and prior to the millennial kingdom. So the tribulation period, catch this, is not a matter of us going through it to be refined as some form of punishment. I think that's a distortion of God, his scripture, and grace. And it misses the point that it's not God using the tribulation to refine his church. He's doing that already. But it's a time when he's judging people of their sin and restoring Israel who's rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And meanwhile, he's already taken us because he's not appointed us to wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, and Revelation 3, verse 10. We get to celebrate and worship our Savior. That's what Jesus is doing here. And so this phrase, meet the Lord in the air, the word meet here in Greek is, Apontesis. Apontesis. 
It signifies a delegation party that gathers outside the city to welcome and honor a dignitary. So the point here and the language that's used is the concept by Paul is an indication that after the church is raptured, we will escort the Lord to the earth. That's why this is so significant. That's our duty. That's the privilege that we get to have. The Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary says, quote, such processions of leading citizens going out to welcome and accompany a visiting ruler or official back uh, to the city were common in Hellenistic times. So again, this term in Greek, apotesis, has this same sense in its two other New Testament occurrences. The wise virgins with their oil-filled lamps they meet the bridegroom and they escort him back to the banquet. That's in Matthew 25 or 6. The second one is the Christians in Rome. They walk south to meet Paul on his prison journey and they escort him back to the capital city in Acts 28 verse 15. So Zondervan Bible Commentary says, The picture that Paul presents, therefore, is of the church, consisting of both deceased but now resurrected in living Christians, meeting the descending Christ in the air and then escorting him back to earth, end quote. Isn't that beautiful? That's the significance of the rapture, my friends, the doctrine of imminency. And we are told this great promise, we will always be with the Lord. That's the consummation that will occur from new birth to everlasting life in perfect harmony with the Lord. And I love this in closing and this is a great closing for us here on the podcast. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul's words about the sudden return of Christ for his church was a new teaching that was meant to bring comfort to the new believers in the Macedonia region. And my friends, I pray that as we went through this, that it's also brought comfort to you. Thank you guys for listening. Till next time, keep standing strong, my friends. 